Hello, and welcome to the program. I'm Don Johnson, and this is episode 7 of For All Time. I'm going to jump around a lot today, but um, I think we're going to read a lot of things that will illuminate us for the coming days. Uh, I'm going to read real quick from the cover of today's Wall Street Journal. Uh, That is Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. Microsoft strikes Activision mega deal. A $75 billion pact alters video game landscape, but also comes with a workplace scandal. I'm surprised I actually haven't covered this yet. Let me begin. Microsoft Corp. agreed to buy Activision Blizzard in an all-cash deal valued at around $75 billion, using its largest acquisition by far to grab a video game heavyweight that has been roiled by claims of workplace misconduct. The deal, if completed, would sharply expand Microsoft's already sizable video game operation, adding a stable of popular video game franchises including Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, and Candy Crush to Microsoft's Xbox console business and its own games like Minecraft and Doom. Minecraft it acquired, of course, by buying up Mojang several years ago, the company that makes Minecraft, um, for, I believe at the time, $2 billion, something like that. Um, And that was a big deal at the time, a huge deal, in fact. Uh, All the financial news was talking about it, video game or otherwise, uh, it was a kind of a landmark deal of its kind in that world, but not for long. Um, other hardware manufacturers would try to consolidate the world shortly after, but Microsoft, of course, using their incredible wealth to purchase everything they could. So they also bought Bethesda just a few years ago, you know, which, of course, makes... The Elder Scrolls franchise, Fallout, uh, the new Doom games, anything that falls under the like the Zenimax banner. I mean, the honestly, the thing that makes them probably the their biggest cash cow right now would be Elder Scrolls Online, which I know that their microtransaction store makes a real serious amount of cash. Um, but let me continue. Microsoft said the transaction would make it the world's third largest gaming company by revenue behind China's Tencent Holdings, which basically is the company that controls Epic Games, and Japan's Sony Group Corp. The deal is what obviously uh, controls and runs the PlayStation brand. The deal is valued at $68.7 billion after adjusting for Activision's net cash, Microsoft said. An acquisition would also also would mark the latest and biggest move by Microsoft Chief Executive Officer Satya Nadella to reshape Microsoft through a string of deals that have helped make the world's second highest value company a powerhouse in business computing and a rising giant in video games. The deal entails significant complications too. Shares in Activision had been down nearly 30% since California regulators filed a lawsuit against the company in July, alleging sexual harassment and gender pay disparity among the company's roughly 10,000 employees. And this was a big deal at the time. I highly suggest you go and Google Activision's vast and lengthy history of 
um, basically not listening to anyone who works for them about anything that's happening at the company. Um, Activision shares, which jumped in pre-market trading Tuesday after the Wall Street Journal reported the company was close to a deal with Microsoft, ended the day at $82.31, gaining 26%. 26%. So anyone who knew of that deal in the works certainly profited considerably. Microsoft shares fell 2.4% Tuesday. Right. That would be normal for an acquisition of this kind, I believe. Let's take a look, though. Um, is there anything left in the article worth taking a look at? Yes. Here's a, here's a bit of an idea, uh, for example, of how big Activision Blizzard is as a corporation. Um, they're worth around $75 billion. Uh, and LinkedIn... Which they bought in 2016 was worth only 26 was worth 26.2 billion dollars. Skype was 8.5, and Zenimax, which included Bethesda, so you're talking about Fallout and Elder Scrolls and all of that Skyrim examples like that, um, only cost them 8.1 billion to acquire that. Activision Blizzard, of course. See, the money is 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 really in Call of Duty. The microtransactions there, the annual expectation of revenue i mean it's it's a yearly not to mention all the blizzard properties under their hat which they could make money with but seem to be completely letting go i mean obviously microsoft will change that letting go things like uh letting diablo slip into an infinite development cycle um a couple times in a row actually um letting the sequel to WoW effectively be completely trashed multiple times before turning it into a game, which luckily for them worked out that Overwatch was successful. But in you know not in recent years, it hasn't seen nearly the spotlight that it used to gain. Um, anyway, it's been quite a mess over there. Uh, hopefully the leadership will change things. Um, it goes on to say a bunch of fun facts about CEO Bobby Kotick who's been with the company since 1991 uh, let me continue oh yes Microsoft's closing price at print was 302.65 I imagine it has changed since Bobby Kotick Activision's longtime CEO is expected to leave after the deal closes according to people familiar with these those plans. If you remember, Bobby Kotick is co-starring with uh, Brad Pitt and uh, Jonah Hill in Moneyball. He was uh, sitting behind the desk for one scene where he played some guy, but that was, for some reason, CEO Bobby Kotick hanging out on the set of Moneyball. Uh, he is expected to leave after the deal closes. Microsoft has said in its announcement Tuesday that Mr. Kodak will continue to serve as CEO of Activision Blizzard until that time. Uh, the deal... Uh, hmm. The business will report to Phil Spencer, the Microsoft Gaming Chief, but the companies have agreed that he will depart once the deal closes. In an interview Tuesday, Mr. Kodak didn't specifically address his status after the deal. Uh, but has said that he will always be available to ensure that we are going to have the very best integration. 
which I don't know if anyone is familiar with the history of how uh, when the Vivendi deal was made and Blizzard was integrated the last time, there was zero integration with Activision. So (laughs) we'll see. Since the California lawsuit, Activision, Mr. Kodak, and his board of directors have been under pressure from shareholders, business partners, and others over the misconduct allegations. Following a Wall Street Journal investigative article in November about Activision's handling of workplace issues, nearly a fifth of Activision's employees signed a petition calling for Mr. Kodak to resign, and Mr. Spencer told Microsoft employees the company was evaluating its relationship with Activision. Microsoft approached Activision about a deal in November after the journal's article, people familiar with the matter said. A Microsoft spokesman declined to comment on the timing of the acquisition. Interesting. An Activision spokesperson didn't respond to comment uh, requests. Activision has announced a number of changes in recent months that Mr. Kodak has said are intended to make it welcoming and inclusive workplace including a zero-tolerance harassment policy and an end to mandatory arbitration for harassment and discrimination claims, which, if you remember, basically means that you can't sue the company for wrongdoing that happens to you while you're at the workplace. Completely wild. Unbelievable. I mean, basically, the only thing you could go through is arbitration, which, from other numerous cases in recent history, we should be aware that uh, arbitration-based settlements with your employer are a losing game to begin with. So it's just, there's nowhere to even win on that. Um, Let's see, let me continue forward. Mr. Nadella's Microsoft has shown an enormous appetite for acquisitions, but Activision is more than twice the size of any previous deal. In that earlier purchase, Microsoft paid more than $26 billion for a professional social network, LinkedIn Corp., in 2016, pushing Microsoft into social media. Last year, Microsoft made what was then its second largest acquisition, shelling out $16 billion for artificial intelligence company Nuance Communications, Inc. to help accelerate growth in the healthcare market. Microsoft has stumbled in some of its deal efforts, notable in the defeat in 2020 of its... Excuse me. Microsoft has stumbled in some of its deal efforts, noticeable in the defeat in 2020 of its attempt at buying parts of short video app TikTok, from Chinese parent company ByteDance Limited. Yes, I do recall that. At the time, uh, TikTok faced a threatened ban in the U.S. by then-President Donald Trump, a Republican over national security concerns. And I believe that was because the claim was made that uh, the servers and access to the data and everything were physically located in China. Eventually, the deal was settled I believe Oracle was the company that was going to buy a piece of it, and then Microsoft was going to buy a piece of it, and then I actually can't remember how that ended up. Um, But let me continue. Since taking over as CEO in 2014, Mr. Nadella has spent more than $10 billion to buy more than a dozen game studios, including the companies responsible for the Doom franchise and Minecraft. In October, the journal's Wall Street Journal Tech Live conference, Mr. Spencer, the gaming chief, said the company wasn't slowing down in its gaming acquisition spree. We're always out there looking for people who think 
would be a good mat we would be a good match with and teams that we would that would be a good match with our strategy so we're definitely not done mr spencer said by the way this remains uh if you look at like the list of kind of sizable game companies that could still be acquired by them there's only eight left there's only eight sizable developers and ubisoft's actually at the bottom of that list which is maybe surprising to you um i think there may be like number seven on that list there's only eight companies left for either Sony or Microsoft to acquire that is of any size. It's it's really quite fascinating. Uh, I believe Roblox, excuse me, Roblox, is on that list now. I don't think they're going to sell it to anyone necessarily unless someone makes them a. They seem to be on an asymptotic rise, so I, I don't know if they're in a position to sell necessarily yet. Um. It basically goes on to explain that uh, Microsoft's future strategy is to be the Netflix for games. They want to deliver everything via the cloud, much like Netflix, through streaming uh, literal actual video data or by having a console in, in the people's homes who want the performance and graphics that you would require. I mean, I actually think that's a really fascinating strategy. Will the Internet get there? Yes, eventually, at some point. The technology is all present Honestly, right now, it's, it's, it's about um, making sure that bandwidth and latency are no longer roadblocks. But, I mean, heck, some people have been playing streaming games since, I don't know, on PC, 2007, 2008. There was, uh, what was that, Game Tap? That was pretty cool. Cool tech worked all the way back then. You could play, uh, I don't know, what was it? Those Game, game Pop? What were those called? PopCap? The PopCap games. Those were on there. And uh, all kinds of, uh, I don't know, they had to deal with like Capcom. There's some great stuff on there. Anyway. I just thought that was particularly fascinating because basically there's nothing left um, to acquire in 10 years. All the uh, game manufacturers will basically recontrol most developers and we'll be right back where we were before the whole kickstart revolution started and i just think that's an interesting little cycle all right if you love that you're gonna love this because it's completely different um this is <clears throat> i'm just gonna read a little bit from lies that came true this is written by eileen bernard the amazing creation of cape coral florida this is a sort of a historical account of her own personal experiences. Now, she created a uh, fictional character to kind of um, act as herself here. Um, she created sort of like a, a male executive who's like an assimilation of like herself and a couple others, essentially. Uh, but she served as an executive. I've put this all together through context and including another book about the history of Cape Coral, which does mention this, and even... I think even maybe somewhere in the breeze recently when they were talking about the history of Cape Coral, they may have mentioned these as actually accounts of hers. Uh, but she writes herself in as Ulysses T. Green. I don't know if that's just a little nod to um, anything, honestly, but that was her insertion. Uh, excuse me. That was her inserted character is herself the person that she basically narrates this through. And it starts off talking about um, how Cape Coral began. 
and it gets to a bunch of different things. But first, I just want to read the back of the book because I think it kind of gives you a flavor of what we're dealing with. Tall tales and hard sails in Cape Coral, Florida. Leonard Rosen stood on a big mound of earth, waving his arms like Moses on the mount, and proclaimed to his chief engineer, there will be a great city here someday, then added with a laugh, in spite of us. When his mother heard him say this, she raised her eyebrows and said, what, you build a city? Why, Leonard, you can't even keep your room clean. Lies that came true gives you the inside story of the creation of Leonard Rosen's instant city. It's a tale of power, money, and lots of imagination. Lies that came true proves that freewheeling Cape Coral has, a remark has had a remarkable life and will of its own from the beginning, surviving Hurricane Donna, a civil war over the Cape Coral Bridge, a land mogul who sold land he didn't own and swapped home sites like trading stamps, and the wild struggles of hothead pioneers and madcap salesmen. At least, Eileen Bernard has published her long-awaited book, and 240 saucy and spicy pages has revealed the glorious lies that sold and delighted thousands. Eileen Bernard arrived in Cape Coral in 1958, just as the Rosen brothers were digging the first canals for what was to be known as the Waterfront Wonderland, which is, that was our original nickname. For more than 13 years, she was in the middle of the great... Promotion commotion, writing press releases, editing the Cape Coral Sun, arranging publicity, and observing the incredible happenings, and listening to the wonderful tales that made the early days of Cape Coral so interesting. At right, she is seen with Connie Mack Jr. in 1961, which, yes, is the famous baseball player, and I believe later um, Florida State Senator? Well, at least his son is. Either way, let me continue. I just wanted to focus for this mostly on these salespeople because they are quite some characters. <laughs> All right, here we go. Chapter three. The Company Men. The Rosens. Kenneth Schwartz. Connie Mack Jr. Bob Finkernagel. Paul Sanborn. Milt Mendelssohn. Milt Mendelssohn's a real, real character. All right. The Rosens. And remember that Ulysses is essentially uh, her, the writer. Ulysses believed that Eric Fromm, uh, that, hmm. Ulysses believed with Eric Fromm that, quote, the most important of man's efforts is his own personality. People always had much to say to Ulysses about the personality of Cape Coral's developer, Leonard Rosen. Some said that he was crude, rude, vulgar, and even despicable. Those who knew Rosen well realized that his behavior was for shock value. He loved to shock people. It is said that one evening he had some high-class traditional gentry from Fort Myers as guests on a boat on the river. Many of them nearly fell into a swoon when he threw off every stitch of his clothing and dove into the Caloosahatchee. Ulysses observed that Rosen was a splendid example of male chauvinism, flaming egotism, and impressive sensuality. But nobody said he wasn't a man of his word. Ruthless, superior negotiator he was, but once the deal was made, he stood by it. 
He was not a snob or a hypocrite, and he never let his money make him act like a big shot. He had a great sense of humor and a lively mind. He was publicly philanthropic, and he was privately generous, usually on impulse. He was sometimes courteous and considerate, often when least expected. His vanity was limited. His attire consisted of two outfits, a black suit and a white shirt, and rumpled-up tennis shorts and polo shirt. Ulysses admired most his sense of identity. Like Freud, Rosen had, quote, examined himself thoroughly and come to the conclusion that he didn't need to change much, end quote. <laughs> Roland Gertenbeck, a pioneer, at one time was an assistant manager of the Surfside, which is kind of like the first, uh, if you think about, it's basically the first uh, kind of diner tavern in community collection spot of the town um in those days it was a fancy place and the rosens had ordained that all the people in charge dress up the men in white dinner jackets interesting so roland was then thus attired one evening when a man came in dressed in a long and dirty overcoat and a cap pulled down over his ears he glided about the place from table to table addressing the diners he then sat down and ordered a cup of tea Roland thought he was a panhandler. He started to ask him to leave when someone whispered to him, that's Leonard Rosen. Even his admirers, and there were many, could not claim Rosen was fastidious in his habits. One businessman went to see him in his elaborate Miami office. There Leonard was, bare to the chest, sitting behind a huge desk, eating a buttered popcorn with both hands, scratching his bare chest at the same time. <laughs> Holy shit. What a dude. It was said he sat in his bathroom and dictated to a secretary seated outside the door. He was a good actor. Ulysses would go... Wait, I just want to repeat that sentence. It was said he sat in his bathroom and dictated to his secretary seated outside the door. So we're talking like some real madman style behavior here. In fact, this is like... Considering this is actual behavior and madman, you know, while probably accurate was supposed to be an exaggerated depiction of a series of all the confusing elements of what that world would entail in entail in one scenario this man seemed like he was living all the scenarios at one um he was a good actor ulysses would go with him into a bank where he wanted to beguile some dignified conservative financial person rosen would assume a subdued manner that was a joy to watch the minute he was out of that place, he would again become the entrepreneur, resuming his usual behavior. Great flamboyance laced with crude language. Less was known about Jack Rosen than his brother, since he was in Baltimore most of the time. The salesman held him in awe and called him a genius. He was a slighter build than his brother and had flashing, rather large, white teeth. Jack Rosen was thought to be some uh, to be kind and sincere, more sensitive and compassionate in nature than his brother, but also less stable. He could be difficult to deal with and that would sometimes and would sometimes be erratic in behavior. This was complicated by hypochondri <laughs> hypochondriac hmm. hypochondriacal periods where he would try to hmm where he would try new nostrums of various sorts, 
What a lovely sentence. This was complicated by hypochondriacal periods where he would try new nostrums of various sorts. He would fly into a rage if Heath bars and lifesavers were not at his desk. It was said that he had more secretaries in a year than anyone else in Baltimore. Jack Rosen appeared more emotional about everything than his brother, including Cape Coral. It is said he thought uh, of it as his monument. Perhaps it should be, for he was an idea man, but his sales efforts did the job. The paragraph structure is quite interesting at this point. He was credited with initiating the selling of drug items in supermarkets. Leonard Rosen gave his people freedom to fail or succeed, but his brother was different. When one of his men, goaded beyond his limit, tried to resign, Jack jumped up on his desk, stared down at the man, and screamed, You'll never leave me! One sales executive said, Jack was always trying to keep up with Leonard. They held the world championship of sibling rivalry, but it was fatal to say anything about one brother to the other. Monumental arguments between the two always charged the atmosphere. What effect this tension had to do with their health is speculative. Jack died of a heart attack in 1969 at age 50 of a, uh, after a particularly difficult business trip to Europe. Leonard Rosen had open-heart surgery. Family was important to them as money. In an early speech at the Yacht Club, which is kind of the main hub for public events at the time, Leonard Rosen told a story about his mother. He said that he uh, had told her by 1968 he would have 12,000 people living at Cape Coral. His mother looked down at him straight in the eye and said, Why, Leonard, how can you claim to do a thing like that? You couldn't even keep your room clean. The father was said to have been a one-time fruit peddler in Baltimore, and the brothers to have done street selling in their early years. The family, and the tradition of many American retail empires, had a large discount furniture store in downtown Baltimore for many years. Um, and I believe the items they were talking about selling, if I've done my research from the other histories, have said that they essentially were the definitive snake oil salesmen. Like, they were the very literal definition. You know, at least the modern equivalent. Like, they were, you know, the guy in the street selling the items. It's... Quite incredible, their meteoric rise. The father was said to have been a one-time fruit peddler in the 1950s. The brothers bought a company making a hair product called Formula 9. This is it. This is the moment where things start going crazy for the Rosen brothers. Formula 9 uh, was promoted aggressively as Charles Antel. They made a hit with an outrageous but wildly successful TV commercial showing Rosen breaking an egg on his head and talking about it as people treating their hair, uh, talking about people treating their hair badly, boiling it and baking it, etc. Did you ever see a bald-headed sheep? Did you ever see a sheep herder with chapped hands? It asked, extolling the virtues of lanolin, which is typically extracted from uh, sheep as a like a sheep wool byproduct. The Rosens were one of the first successes of mail-in coupon TV commercials. To reduce their large advertising costs in Charles Antel, Leonard Rosen is said to have gone west and bought up some old movies. He is credited as a pioneer of The Late Show, 
when he contacted TV stations and offered them the movies cheap with the proviso that the station advertised his Antel products. So basically, he was doing a reverse, uh, kind of a creative solution to the uh, late night uh, advertising promotions that you see now and, and more, you know, probably more in the 90s and 2000s when you, you know, late night at TV, the airtime, you know, is available because there's no programming. So it's extremely cheap. Advertisers can come in, use their, uh, infra, you know, basically infomercials. They can um, uh, buy time on channels and have immediate product response without ever putting a product on shelf. Direct to consumer, uh, very low um, costs overhead compared to trying to get your items in stores. You know, this has been uh, done for a long time, but it is claimed in multiple places. I have seen even outside of this uh, with them credited as the kind of the creator of that. And so what they would do is they would buy outright the rights to very old movies. Really fascinating. And they would take these sort of like a movie of the week kind of situation, but you know, all the ads in between would be for products that they were trying to sell. Now I can't remember exactly if they use the time to sell out to other companies. I believe as the book says, uh, my, my, I believe it. My other research does agree with this and says that, um, they just use it for the Charles Antel product. But they, if you go and look, you can find the ads somewhere. I have seen them online, um, maybe in archive.org. The ads do exist out there somewhere. Uh, but basically, yeah, you know, it was a mail-in order on the TV, but way, way, way before the time before that was a thing. Uh, let's see. A Gulf American executive said they were hard men. They were tough bosses, but they had a magical air about them. Some of these executives remembered them differently. They respected nothing but money, one said, with a little grudging respect for you if you were good enough to make more money for them. Nevertheless, both brothers left nothing to be desired in their constant helpfulness in the early days to any resident or employee who had illness or trouble. Planes and limousines were put at the disposal of families for as long as needed. When the ministers had parishioners in Miami hospitals, air carriers were provided. A limousine was waiting to take the minister back and forth as many times as necessary. For several years, flowers were sent to the women residents for any special occasion and always on holidays. Each new family was paid a visit and flowers presented to them. Employees faced with an emergency were offered as much money as needed to pay back when they could. It's quite an interesting uh, combo of... Uh, treatments as we'll find out Kenny Schwartz Ulysses would hear the employees chant Leonard and Jack, Schwartz and Mac for these were the four big company men Kenneth Schwartz managed Ma uh, Cape Coral Development for its first seven years and was vice president from 1957 until 1964 Ulysses would later tell people you should have known Kenny Schwartz. He was just as colorful, just as mind-bending as the Rosens. He passed on the feeling that he was taking part in the biggest adventure in the world. Ulysses saw Schwartz as a tall, handsome man, articulate and aggressive. We all love a friendly egotist, Ulysses said, and Kenny was one. But he was much more, and the stimulus that kept uh, the stimulus that kept the confused and organized populace marching on when things faltered. Schwartz was young for the job and hadn't had too much business experience. One person referred to him as the former taskmaster 
of a fleet of neighborhood ice cream hawkers. <laughs> he was not always understanding of others. He was impatient with stupidity, as there is much about. <laughs> All right. He was often rude, then sorry for it later. Nevertheless, Schwartz met head-on the unexpected problems that go with all untried enterprises. He made the hard decisions and had the courage to do unpleasant things, make mistakes, and pay for them. He had long, thin legs and enormous feet like a puppy, as they were always on the move. His face had many different expressions coming and going, like sunshine and shadow. He was popular with the women. They knew he was conning them. The men did too, but they accepted it. Schwartz had figured out early that people valued flattery as much as praise. One day, flinging open the, the door of an office, he sailed this handwritten note, airplane fashion, at a woman employee's desk. <laughs> All right. Quote, Beloved blank, your note to Leonard pleased me so much. I am grateful for your nice comments about our personal relationship. It has brought me so much rich satisfaction. Your proposal for the project was tasteful and sympathetic, reflecting, as you always do, the sensitivity of your understanding and the guileless simplicity of your personality. I shall be surprised if LR does not favor respond, uh, respond favorably to your suggestion. Thank you, blank, for the pleasure of our association has brought me, as ever, Kenny. In later years, Ulysses saw many such notes in the scrapbooks of pioneers. He thought what... Uh, what a sad commentary on the lack of recognition and of expression of affection in this world. Dude was pulling that um, paper airplane shit quite a bit, is, is the idea there. I'll give you a quality of the characters. We're assembling a crew here. Stick with me. We're assembling a crew. We're assembling a super team... I'm walking you through this out of order because I think this makes more sense than the initial order that the story is told in. This is this is a super crew of of the 1950s most. If you sent everyone on down to Florida that you had in your Rolodex that were gonna like make the land deal happen, and these were the guys that were just accidentally gonna actually make it happen instead of it coming out like a total scam. Like, I mean, it basically did turn out kind of that way, but it, it turned out that way, and then it, it, it took a, a special little turn, and then and then it just kept going <laughs> in a way that other places really just never have, or at least not around here. Um, and I think it has everything to do with how it was created and how it was the perfect place, the perfect time, and a big old long timeline, and it fits right into today. And I think it all starts with this crew. Not to say that they're good characters. They are bad actors, for sure, but they are interesting characters. Schwartz screamed and shouted a lot and had no patience with slowness. Once, contract in hand and pulling along a couple opening a gift shop, he rushed up to a woman uh, employee's desk and announced, Quick! I'll give you five minutes to think up a good name for the shop. And so Tropic Trifles, the first gift shop in Cape Coral, was born. The pioneers have a hundred stories about Schwartz, some good, some bad, but most of them about his impressive memory. Several years after meeting a customer, he was able to call him by name and ask, 
Where's that bolo tie you wore last time? <laughs> I love keeping track of people's bolo ties. Everybody waited for Schwartz to decide things. One day, out of the blue, a woman resident with whom he was only slightly acquainted rushed into his office in tears and sobbed, I don't care what you say, Mr. Schwartz. I am going to marry Ray Jones. I didn't know that we needed Mr. Schwartz's uh, permission. And apparently Schwartz agreed. Schwartz barely knew what she was talking about, but getting down on his knees and throwing out his arms, he gave her his paternal blessing. But his greatest quality was that he showed an interest in you and everything about you, said a former employee. What he said to you might not please you, but at least in a world of indifference, he knew you were there. (laughs) Condemning praise, if I ever heard any. Every minute of the day... Schwartz was up to something lively. In 1958, the dozen children on the property were given a soda when they got off the hot school bus. One day, a boy refused his usual cola. The mother complained to Schwartz, who whipped out his personal check and wrote on it. Pay to the owner of Ronnie Weiberg one cola any damn time he wants it. And gave it to the boy. He had another side. His feuds with some people were ugly and spiteful. For many years, he had one of the feuds with Pete Petrie. Oh, this is, uh, yeah, this is a great story. Uh, Pilot turned independent realtor. Uh, Pete Petrie was like a dude who basically uh, flew planes around and uh, would take people on tours of the area. But he was, uh, you know, initially he was working for the company. And then he kind of just went on his own, did that for himself, and then started buying little parcels and selling them, doing his own little game. And he opened, I believe, it was the first independent real estate company in town and became like a big time, like basically inside competitor in town who was the only person reliably that you could go to like rebuy and resell parcels in the area. It's quite fascinating, really. Um, He came up with quite a scheme. It was like a, a miniature, like, pop-up shop within the scam. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Schwartz came up to Petrie's son and offered to write a letter to the Wharton School of Business, his alma mater for the young man. He carried it through, and the Petrie's credit it with helping getting their son into the school. So, yeah, he's still, like, you know, this is a guy who is literally eating his his business from the inside out, and he still wrote his his rival son a letter of recommendation to the Wharton School. You know. the You have to understand, the motivations and behaviors of these people who created this city is not as black and white as you think. Like, Mad Men does definitely describe the um, general vibe and atmosphere and setting and time span of... These, all these activities. But also, these people are human characters. They are because they are real humans. And so they did a lot of things that don't fit into even your concept of today's, you know, real estate tycoon, today's entrepreneur, businessman. I mean, these people started from nothing and, and, and literally, you know, they started from basically nothing and they worked their way up to, you know, this insane situation. Uh, which was, you know, the height of, I mean, at the time, it was America's largest. There was more heavy equipment used in the excavation of our, like, 50-something miles of canals here in Cape Coral 
There was more heavy equipment here than any other place on Earth. Caterpillar had leased out basically like their entire leasing fleet to this, right? A bunch of them were purchased to, to Cape Coral, basically just to dig this project for like three or four years. This was like the largest excavation, like for, you know, not a mine in the world. Unbelievable. Quite a project. This was like, <laughs> you know, I don't know. These weren't, they're complicated people. That's all I'm saying. Schwartz's initial attempt at residing in Cape Coral seemed to be more punishment than honor for a veteran city dweller. Stuck in the virtual wilderness of the peninsula of Cape Coral, he slept uh, nightly in a strange environment, far from the rapid pulse of city lights, traffic jams, concrete, and asphalt he had known as a businessman in Baltimore. I'm a guy who had hardly ever seen a chicken except in a magazine, he said, but I kind of liked my new impression of myself as the rugged outdoorsman. Schwartz's first Cape Coral home was a unit of a fourplex apartment at the center of Cape Coral Parkway and Coronado Parkway. If you go look that up, it still exists. Or at least the location does. He moved in in April, about the time Gulf American offices were being located in the same building. Gulf American is the corporation that started Cape Coral, that these people are members of or employees of. Or owners of. The adventure of building a community by daylight was exciting, rewarding, and challenging. At night, however, the thrill often disgruntled into a slight tremble of fear for Schwartz as he had uh, quiet hours to contemplate his virtual isolation in the woods. And it was. I mean, even when I was growing up in the region, it was extremely isolated out here. It looks completely different now than it did even 30 years ago, and I can't imagine how it looked in the 50s. It must have felt like living in the swamp, like the deepest, furthest stretches of the swamp, even. Completely wild, completely untamed. I mean, if you want to see what Cape Coral looked like then, just go to Google Maps and go to the southwest corner, the very tip of Florida, zoom in really far and look at just the kind of um, random collection of terrains, sandy spots, springs, uh, clearings, and stuff like that. That's it. That's that's what Cape Coral looked like. Just... Uh, many square miles of that. By 1964, Ken Schwartz had left Gulf American. His career with the Rosen brothers had ended, but his admiration for the great adventure lived on. Um, he would eventually watch Gulf American decline and would leave. But let's tell a little story about the next character in our story, Connie Mack Jr. Ulysses thought that great dignity was not the strong suit of the Gulf American executives, but there was one who had enough for all the rest. His name was Cornelius McGillicuddy Jr., directly descended from the tall McGillicuddys of the mountains of Ireland's County Kerry. It will never be known how the people bought Cape Coral home sites solely because of meeting Connie Mac Jr., oh, how many people, excuse me, solely by meeting Connie Mac Jr., knowing he's part of the company, or getting a letter signed by him. His signature and name were used in thousands of ways. He officiated at every event, big or small, day or night, always friendly, his dignity enhanced by his six-foot-five-inch frame. Mac had lived and was in real estate for Fort Myers for six years before the Rosens hire, uh, hired him. All right, so he was involved in Fort Myers real estate across the river. 
During his years with Gulf American, Mac greeted thousands of people, and most of them talked about his dad. He always had the same courteous, gentle response when visitors invariably said, I thought a lot of your old man. Ulysses often thought about how hard it must have been to have a, uh, how hard it must have been, or be, to have a famous father. Mac's father, of course, was a famed baseball legend who brought his famous Philadelphia Athletics to Fort Myers from 1923 to 1935. That was the day of baseball greats like Lefty Grove, Al Simmons, Mickey Cochran, Jimmy Dyke, Jimmy Fox, Ty... My father said it never rained during the games in Fort Myers during all those years, but never publicized it that way because they didn't think people would believe them. So they said it rained two days. <laughs> Mac was a decent, considerate man who was put in difficult position many times because of the great divergence of his background and... Uh, how his background diverged from those of the Rosens. There is no doubt he had a tempering influence on the brothers. Once he was about to resign over differences in opinion, but decided he would stay because he thought his influence was needed. He got the Rosens to change many of their policies. If he had fully understood their, if he had fully understood their need of him, for they really needed him, especially in the early years, he would have exerted even greater pressure. The pairing of Mac with the ebullient Kenny Schwartz was an example of the Rosen's talent for getting the right people in key positions. Mac calmed down those persons whom Kenny Schwartz had stimulated into nervous breakdowns. And that was like a literal uh, description of a story I'm sure I'll recount later. The only criticism Ulysses heard of Connie Mac Jr. was from someone who had refused a request and said that he had, quote, sold out to the Rosen's. Ulysses felt that no one who knew Mac well would have thought that. He opposed the Rosens every day. Max said that countless times he would decide to reign over resign. Oh, he would uh, threaten to resign over differences, but community members, including the clergy, urged him to stay, realizing that his influence was needed. So it sounds like Connie Mac Jr. was constantly trying to quit, and uh, Leonard was constantly giving him more concessions to keep him around. But, uh, yeah, I mean, early on, this community uh, used uh, the lure of baseball and spring training to uh, to get people here for tourism and to grow our population. It exists to this day. I mean, right now we have the uh, Red Sox, Minnesota Twins uh, doing spring training here every year. And, um, I mean, we even built a tiny, like, Fenway Stadium for them here. It's like the same exact replica field, even. Um, it's pretty wild. Let's continue. They go on to say that he, uh, crashed in a plane once. He was a heavy drinker. All right. Bob Finkernagel. Uh, Bob uh, Finkernagel, a Pennsylvania Dutchman, came to Cape Coral in 1961 as managing director of the development, replacing Schwartz, who is now a vice president. Finkernagel had been manager of the Gainesville Chamber of Commerce. He was spared some of the pioneer struggles of the first three years, but his job was more complicated and demanding some of his predecessors. He had failed to convince people of the community to break ties with hitherto paternalistic developers and stand their own etc. His cool personality was a drastic change from Schwartz's overblown manner. A bright and complicated man, witty in conversation, well-read, Finkernagel had the ability to do, with style and class, anything he chose to do, whether it was business, athletics, or civil work. 
civic work. He went on to become a pivotal figure in the growth of many phases of the community, with publisher uh, was publisher of The Breeze, our local paper, and is credited as the most influential in making Cape Coral Hospital possible. Paul Sanborn came to Cape Coral in 1962 as a community relations director, a Virginian whose background was in radio and the Chamber of Commerce management. He was the first manager of the Country Club and was also manager of the Yacht Club as well. A man of modesty, integrity, and few pretensions, always helpful, kind, and friendly, he was the favorite within the community. Sanborn devoted much of his adult life to the betterment of Cape Coral and served throughout his career tirelessly to serve the people. Milton Mendelssohn. Milt Mendelssohn was said to have instructed Reader Associates in the design of Cape Raider Associates in the design of Cape Coral. Raider Associates was the architectural firm that was desired to create the master plan for the city. Um, I, a lot of that master plan was discarded after the years went on, but um, parts of it definitely exist right from the start. It's kind of fascinating how much of today's Cape Coral was de- designed on paper in paragraph form even. Um, and if you look in some of the official documentation back from the day, transfer papers, um, like uh, deeds and, and such from the 60s, incredible the stuff that they had um, written into all that, the compact basically of Cape Coral since it wasn't incorporated yet. The restrictions and is quite amazing. It was basically the, it's like a precursor to all the, you know, South Florida suburban communities on canals that exist. Um, I think condo level restrictions on the city level well before that would have even been a thing for condos. Hmm. Mendelssohn simultaneously played the roles of engineer, artist, writer, salesman, advertising expert, and philosopher. He was always trying to make changes in the middle of an engineer of engineer Tom Weber's projects, and nothing was ever artistic enough for Mendelssohn. He was furious because he thought the fishing pier was too plain. In later years, Mendelssohn was convicted of fraud for some unhappy real estate dealings in Rocket City, Florida. He said to have spent more than a year of incarceration, although Rosen made great efforts to help him and prevent it. Mendelssohn also narrowly escaped serious trouble over his activities in Harbor Heights near Punta Gorda, but was saved mainly by Rosen's intervention. So there's your cast. Those are the founding fathers of this city, the... uh, kings of the scam if there was an art of the deal written before the art of the deal it would have been just this book and you could have just read it and figured out exactly everything you needed to be a real estate magnate in I don't know 1983 fascinating book fascinating bunch of information incredible testimonials in there but before we go there's just one more thing that I want to talk about because I think it's particularly interesting. And this is in uh, yesterday's Wall Street Journal on the front page. How to handle pacemaker powered by plutonium. Very carefully. Bankrupt hospital had to find new caretaker for patient's decades-old device. This is by Becky Yerrick. The January 18th issue. 
Document 2774, among thousands, in the bankruptcy case of Philadelphia's historic Hanneman University Hospital laid out a curious problem. How should the hospital manage its only patient still implanted with a plutonium-powered pacemaker? The woman, whose identity hadn't been revealed, re- uh, received the device in 1975, back when she was 23 years old, and pacemakers powered by the plutonium-238 isotope weren't uncommon. Nowadays, lithium battery-powered devices are the norm. The patient herself received a lithium battery pacemaker in 1995, and the plutonium device is no longer functional. The radioactive one has never been removed because that would entail a, quote, invasive surgical procedure that wasn't warranted according to the bankruptcy documents. That left Hanneman and now its liquidators with the long-term responsibility to keep track of the device and eventually dispose of it in order to meet with the legal requirements of his license with Pennsylvania environmental regulators. Hanneman's doors closed in 2019, and by late 2020, its medical records that had been transferred had been transferred, its signs removed, and most of its hazardous biomedical waste handled. However, however, And everything was handled except for the pacemaker. The doctor originally responsible for someday returning it to the manufacturer for proper disposal is no longer with Hanneman, and the manufacturer is out of business anyway. The hospital has no remaining doctors to keep tabs on the patient. Few, if any, nuclear-powered pacemakers have been implanted since the late 1980s, according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but few remain in people today. A few remain in people today. The devices usually look like small metal discs or squares that can fit in the palm of your hand. If you look, there's a picture here in the set. It looks like, uh, like think of it like a tin of Altoids. It's about that size. Hmm. I've never had a problem with it, so I'm not going to touch it, said Lori Dabari, who got hers more than 30 years ago at age 25 uh, at Newark Beth Israel Medical Center in Newark, New Jersey. Unlike the one belonging to the Hanneman patient, her device is still working. The part-time school aide and grandmother said she gets it checked every three months from the home through a transmitter affixed to a landline receiver that reads signals from bracelets placed on her moistened arms. I just want to read that one more time. The part-time school aide and grandmother said she gets it checked every three months from home through a transmitter affixed to a landline receiver that reads signals from bracelets placed on her moistened arms. They told me when I pass away, it has to be returned, she said. She said her doctor told her that government officials didn't want the plutonium falling into the wrong hands because it could pose a security risk. Nuclear pacemakers contain only a small amount of radioactive material and pose little risk to patients or people around them, said Duncan White, a senior health physicist uh, with the NRC. The amount of radiation received in a pacemaker is less than that from a single dental x-ray, he said. But the NRC doesn't want unmonitored material in the public domain and wants to ensure proper handling, storage, and disposal, he said. In 2020, the NRC fielded a call from a doctor asking how to dispose of a nuclear-powered pacemaker that 42 years earlier had been removed from his patient's deceased spouse. The NRC... Wow. 
The NRC believes that the hospital cleaned it and engraved a name on it and presented it as a keepsake to the surviving spouse who kept it for decades. The engraving could have caused damage and released some of the radioactive material, Mr. White said, although in this case the spouse wasn't exposed to radiation, the NRC said. It was eventually disposed of properly by a company licensed to handle hazardous waste. In other cases, morticians have removed them and put them aside for retrieval by a disposal team, or in rare occasions, people have been buried with them, Wow, which Mr. White said was a last resort. In these cases, quote, out of respect to the family, we decided to leave it there, he said. The radioactive material is well sealed inside the pacemaker so it won't leak out and is buried underground where it won't be disturbed. Until this article, let everyone know about the existence of them. The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, which issued the license, says only three of its 780 radioactive material licenses involve nuclear pacemakers. Which is to say three companies of 780 companies that they deal with deal with radioactive pacemakers. Hanneman, a 496-bed facility widely known as Philadelphia's Hospital for the Poor and a historic medical teaching institution, was pushed into Chapter 11 after a soured buyout by the California investor Joel Friedman. There had been protests by doctors, city officials, and community groups over its closing, and litigation continues as liquidators sift through its affairs and try to dig up money to repay its debts. Hanneman spent more than $15,000 over a six-month period to continue to meet the terms of the pacemaker license, as September court record shows. The patient follow-ups were being handled by Hanneman's radiation safety officer, a consultant under contract. The license requires maintaining regular contact with the patient, who the bankruptcy documents say is in good health today, and arranging for the pacemaker's removal and disposal after her death. Lawyers working on the hospital's bankruptcy have sought guidance from the Los Alamos National Laboratory's off-site source recovery program, which aims to retrieve radioactive material in sealed sources that could provide, uh, excuse me, could prove a risk to uh, public health and national security. Over the years, the group has dealt with more than 1,600 pacemakers. Most of the removals occurred roughly 20 years ago, but the off-site uh, source recovery program still receives requests to handle one or two pacemakers a year, said Justin Griffin, the team leader for the recovery program. Materials are disposed of at Energy Department facilities. In late September, Hanneman had a breakthrough. It received approval from the bankruptcy court to transfer the pacemaker license and its related duties to the Atlanta-based Permafix Environmental Services, Inc. Permafix. Permafix. That is a video game based term, which gives me great confidence in their abilities to permafix this situation. Thank you to Permafix Environmental Services, Inc., a long-standing player in the business of handling radioactive waste. Hanneman said Permafix was both qualified and cost-effective, so you know they're extra qualified. Oh, yeah, and I'm just reading a, an article above this one here. does mention that Activision pushed out a bunch of its employees right before the merger, um, the people that were problematic, but also... Re but, uh, yeah, that's it for today's program. Um, I'll be back uh, probably the day after you hear this. Whatever day you hear this, probably the day after. And uh, we'll cover a bunch of the news stories that I couldn't get to in recent days. And then we will um, get into some more interesting books that are out of print. 
some arcane knowledge, some lost information. That'll all be coming up soon. That's really what I want to focus on the most. Um, there's an incredible amount of information out there locked up in old books, and we're going to find it all together. And then we're also going to read about um, the Calendar Girls, the 60 to 80-year-old group of dancers from Southwest Florida who are now starring in a Sundance uh, Film Festival selectee. That'll be interesting. We'll talk about that next time. All right. Enjoy your, uh, I don't know, whatever the rest of the day is called to you. How about that? And uh, now you can enjoy this too. See you soon.